Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. Convention of State's co-founder Michael Farris gave the following speech at an Article 5 symposium in 2014. The symposium was moderated by Article 5 scholar Professor Robert G. Nadelson. As many of you know, these um, uh, a, a convention is, is uh, made required by applications submitted by state legislatures. And there are different formulas for applications. For example, some applications would permit a convention to consider only a balanced budget amendment. The Convention of States application, and we have two representatives here tonight from the Convention of States application, from the Convention of States movement, would permit the consideration of any amendment that would reduce the size and scope of the federal government or impose term limits on federal officials. One of the founders of this movement is a gentleman by the name of Mike Ferris. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Mike Ferris. When I was a law professor, which I was for 24 gloomy years, I live with that gloomy. <laughs> when I was a law professor, all of the books where you taught constitutional law included a case called Witters versus Washington Department of Services for the Blind. This was a case that was an important victory for religious freedom. I won't go into all the facts of the case, but suffice to say that the advocates for religious freedom won this victory by a unanimous vote of the justices, something increasingly hard to get. The man who argued that case and won that case by a unanimous vote is right here to my left. Mike Ferris is the founder and the chancellor of Patrick Henry College. He is the founder and chief legal counsel of the Homeschool Legal Defense Fund. He is a former candidate for, I believe, lieutenant governor for the great Commonwealth of Virginia. And the rest of his resume, <laughs> while extremely impressive, is too long to take now. He comes to us from Virginia. Please welcome Mike Ferris. Thank you so much. Well, the reason that I want to see a convention of the states happen is a bit more of my resume. Uh, I have 10 children and 17 grandchildren. And I want my kids and my grandkids to have a country that has a semblance of freedom about it. I believe that we need to retake this country. For, um, I teach constitutional law at the undergraduate level and have done so now uh, for 14 years. And I'm also, as, as Rob has told you, a, a constitutional litigator, mainly at the appellate level. The um, desire that I have overall can be summarized as this. Our country has two constitutions, in effect. We have the Constitution as it was written, and we have the Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court. And people like us, people that are frustrated with Washington, D.C., often say, well, they don't follow the Constitution anyway. Not true. They follow the wrong one. They're following the Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court 
rather than the Constitution as written. And so the overall objective of the Convention of the States project that Mark and I are leading and working on is to ensure that once again our country is following the Constitution as written rather than the Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court. And there are several things that have to be done. Now, Bob's given you a bunch of really good ideas that are essentially procedural in character. And we need to understand that the founders understood something incredibly important is the methodology of making decisions is very vital to the protection of liberty. That's why we have checks and balances and federalism and division of authority. The, the methodology of decision making is essential to the protection of liberty. He's talked to you a lot about various methodologies of decision making. But I want to talk to you a, a little bit about methodology, but I'm also going to deal into the substance of the Congress's power. Because as much as we do about the methodology, I think we have to drive home one really, really important principle about substantive power. And that principle is this. One level and only one level of government should have subject matter jurisdiction over every topic in our nation. Now what that means is this. If the states can spend money and regulate education, the federal government should not be able to spend money and regulate education. If the states can spend money and regulate medical issues, the federal government should not be able to spend money and regulate medical issues. Whatever the issue is, in fact, if you wanted to say what would be the most simple thing we could do to eliminate all the forces that are pushing us toward the national debt, all the entitlement programs that are really the drivers of this would be eliminated if we followed the founders' original meaning on what I call exclusive jurisdiction. Exclusive jurisdiction, one level, and only one level of government deals with each issue, whereas concurrent jurisdiction is where two or more levels of government deal with each issue. When you have concurrent jurisdiction, all you get is more bureaucrats, more debt, less efficient government. It is a mess. And so if we just keep that framework in mind, and how would we accomplish that? There are two clauses in the Constitution that are the chief sources of the problem. They're the General Welfare Clause and the Commerce Clause. And the General Welfare Clause, as interpreted by Chief Justice Roberts in the Obamacare decision, and in fairness to Chief Justice Roberts, while he could have done the courageous thing and interpreted the General Welfare Clause according to its original meaning, he was following in fairly predictable fashion, it just wasn't predictable for him, but it's predictable for the court to follow the line of decision that they have. And, and what the net result of the General Welfare Clause is this. There is no constitutional subject matter limit whatsoever on the subjects that Congress can tax and spend for. I don't want to live in a country where there is no limit for Congress's taxing power and spending power. They are not limited to their enumerated powers, and we need to change the meaning of the General Welfare Clause so that Congress is once again only able to tax and spend for its enumerated powers. It is a very simple fix. We can do it, and we can get the General Welfare Clause back to its original meaning, which was completely in line with the, uh, the exclusive jurisdiction subject matter. The Commerce Clause is similar. The Commerce Clause was intended to give Congress exclusive jurisdiction over interstate commerce. Now, I recently learned, this is a really wonderful analogy, my favorite analogy, it's from Shakespeare. Um, in Romeo and Juliet, when Juliet says, 
Wherefore art thou, Romeo? All my life, I thought she was saying, hey, Romeo, where are you? But in Shakespeare's time, wherefore didn't mean what it means to us today. Wherefore meant why. Completely changes your understanding of the scene. She was saying, why did I fall in love with Romeo? Out of all the guys I could have fallen in love with, why did I fall in love with the enemy of my family? Completely different meaning. The same thing is true of commerce. When you understand what commerce meant in 1787, you will not think it means all business transactions. It didn't include banking. It didn't include manufacturing. It didn't include environmental issues or mining or agriculture or any of these things. It meant essentially shipping. And that's it. Congress can regulate shipping. The Federal Aviation Administration is a perfectly legitimate application of the original meaning of the Commerce Clause. Planes flying across state lines, they need air traffic control, is a perfectly appropriate modern application of the Interstate Commerce Clause. But regulating everything to do with our lives and businesses and all manner of, of mischief, the crushing nature of business. And it's, it's bad enough that they ex uh, exceed their jurisdiction, but what they also do is they compound on top of state regulations on the same subject matters. Businesses have an incredibly difficult time managing their lives because they've got compound and conflicting regulations. When you have one level and only one level of government dealing with each issue, we can be successful in this country. Banking is a really effective system in our country for the most part. And the reason it is is because it's run by state law, not federal law. All the banks, uh, excuse me, all the states in the country thought, you know, it would be a good idea if we had uniform laws on banking. So they appointed the Uniform Commercial Code uh, commissioners. States got together, wrote a model code. And all the states passed the Uniform Commercial Code that regulates banking. The reason it works so well is it's state law in the states. When they needed to work together on something the Constitution gave exclusively to the states, they fixed the problem. It works really good. Your ATM machine card works anywhere in the country because the Uniform Commercial Code works really well anywhere you go. States can use their jurisdiction appropriately, can come up with national solutions. We do not need the federal government. It's a simple fix of the Commerce Clause that would strip the vast majority of federal regulations. Now, um, I am going to, um, I, I like, I just want to pause for a second. We're talking about things that people blog about and comment on the internet about, and you have coffee over, and you say, wouldn't it be nice if we do it? We're doing that, but we're moving forward with actual legislation to make this not a conversation. But there's going to be real proposals on the table that can really be enacted in law. These are things that can really happen within the next two, three, four, five years. These are real. We're not just blowing smoke here tonight. I think every once in a while we just need to remind ourselves this isn't like other conversations about this. Here's my version of a balanced budget amendment. The first thing, the first problem you got with balancing the budget is how do you classify what spending is? Spending should be classified not only as cash expenditures, but when they incur a liability. The, the, you know, how much, I'm 62 years old, which you're supposed to gasp when I say that and say, oh, that's not possible. But I'm, I'm 62 years old, and 
I'm eligible to draw Social Security. I've paid in a lot of money. And if an actuary were to calculate how much money I'm entitled to draw out of the Social Security system, it'd be a big number. But the federal government carries zero on the books for what it owes me on Social Security because they have fun, funny, phony accounting. And if we are going to have correct understanding of debt, it's not just spending, but it's incurring liabilities as well. The second thing is I don't want them spending money based on budget estimates. I want them to spend no more money than they took in the prior year. The second, then we have to have emergency override procedures. My idea for an emergency override procedure is this, that if there's a declared war, no more phony undeclared wars, if there's a declared war, automatic uh, override. And if there's a national emergency, but you know, a national emergency to Congress can be, it's windy outside. And so, and it's impossible to define a national emergency in an effective way. So what you do is you put a structure in place that really makes it so. Here's my structure. 75% majority in both houses of Congress have to declare the national emergency. It's good for a year. The third year in a row, they declare a national emergency so they can spend more than a balanced budget. All members of Congress become permanently ineligible for re-election, period. So, um, If there's a real emergency, they can lay down their offices for the good of the country. But if they're just buying votes, they won't do it. We, we, we hoist them on their own petard. But it, you know, the difference between the, the idea that Bob shared with you and the idea, I want to have that debate because we need to do something in this zone and we're going to come up with the best idea when we have the power to actually make a formal proposal. Um, I uh, also want to delve into one other area quickly. I've got several ideas, but one, one quickly. Um, part of the job that I do for Homeschool Legal Defense Association is I have led the charge in the U.S. Senate to defeat the ratification of the U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child and the U.N. Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Because I have the preposterous idea that Americans should make the law for America. And so... Uh, The founders had no idea that we would ever use treaty power to regulate the domestic policies of the United States. And so we need to have a sovereignty amendment that prohibits the use of treaty power to regulate the domestic policy of the United States. Treaties have a place. I have a, a, an LLM in public international law from the University of London. There is a legitimate place for treaties, how nations treat nations. But there is no legitimate place for how the United States governs its own citizens and how we interact among ourselves by the, the interference of UN and international law. Finally, if we're going to ensure that we stay with the Constitution as written rather than as interpreted by the Supreme Court, my proposal is that we change the method of appointing the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is a part of the Washington DC power cabal. I don't want these people choosing the Supreme Court. And so as I was thinking about how to solve it, Using my public international law background, I thought, European Court of Human Rights has 46 countries, 46 justices. Every nation appoints its own justice. They don't all sit on the bench ever together. They sit in panels to actually hear the oral arguments. 
And if the whole court needs to hear the case, they do it in writing. They circulate the briefs, the transcripts of the oral argument, and so on. It's a modern, efficient, effective court. There's no reason we can't do the exact same thing at the Supreme Court. The states appoint the Supreme Court, not Washington, D.C. And they serve for, in my, my recommendations, eight years, no going back. You want them to be judicially independent. And if they're currying favor by hoping to get reappointed, that wouldn't be good. So it's eight years, and you're gone. And one of the really good things that, about this system would be all the Supreme Court justices wouldn't all come from Harvard and Yale in the top four or five schools. Um, the Convention of the States process, the application we have uh, drafted with Rob's help, is, has passed the legislature of Georgia, it has passed the House in Alabama, it's passed the House in Alaska, it's passed the House in Arizona. We've been working on the A states. Uh, Arkansas is messing up for some reason. Um, we have hearings next week in Missouri and South Carolina. Uh, we are moving, it's still moving in Florida. Uh, we're hoping that five states or so will adopt it in this, our first year of efforts. We started doing this last August. And in, in um, so stay with us. We need your help. And I just want to say one quick thank you to not only Rob Nadelson, who helped in many, many ways, but to Ken Clark and Bob Berry, who, along with me, spent a day in, in uh, an office in Washington, D.C., concocting the essence of the plan that we're now working with the Convention of the States. Thank you very, very much. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.